The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Anti-Modernist Reader on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and on this episode, I'm delighted to be joined once again by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Hello, my Lord. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. In this show, we will cover parts four and five of this document, which critique partial communion and examine the branch theory, respectively. In the next and final show, it's a four-part of this one, it's been a long one, at the final show on this document, we will finish our review of the article. My Lord, we finished the previous show on page 114 of the Anti-Modernist Reader book, talking about the Vatican II superchurch as the precedent of false ecumenism and the false notion of Catholic communion. I wanted to start this episode, as I said at part 4 on page 114. I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs and then I'll ask you a question. Vatican II and John Paul II have elaborated a notion of partial communion of heretics and schismatics, and even pagans with the Catholic Church. It can be found in the decrees of Vatican II, in the 1983 Code of Canon Law, and in the speeches of Wotiwa. Is there any basis for this notion in Catholic doctrine? Understood in the manner in which Vatican II and JP II understand it, the answer is no. Understood in a completely different manner after the teaching of St. Augustine, the answer is yes. So the question is, my lord, is it possible for a person to be justified by any other means than the Catholic Church? The answer to that is no. Uh, they, absolutely not. All justification, all grace uh, is is mediated by the Catholic Church. And you must belong in some way to the Catholic Church. That, that's, the, that's the doctrine of St. Augustine. It's the doctrine of the Catholic Church, that in some minimal way you must belong to the Catholic Church. And that's the distinction that I'm making in this article. Uh, the, the foundation of the distinction is this, that individuals who in heretical sects or schismatic sects or even pagans for that matter, who err in good conscience may, by the grace of God, receive the necessary lights to understand at least some of the truths of the faith and may, by the grace of God, uh, have the proper dispositions towards truth in such a way that they would embrace the Catholic faith if they knew it. And they may also posit by the grace of God the necessary acts which would bring their souls out of the state of original sin to the state of grace. And these people pertain in a way, in a certain way, to the Catholic Church because they have received, through the mediation of Christ and his church, of course, the, the all of these graces which make them participate in the soul of the Catholic Church, which is the life of grace. They receive the supernatural virtues 
of faith and they could receive hope and charity. Uh, and they can be justified. That is, they can go from the state of sin, uh, original sin and mortal sin, into the state of grace, even before the waters of baptism. Right? That's a very important point. So is there a, a partial communion in that sense? That is, there is can someone participate in the life of the church before he actually becomes a member of the church through baptism uh, and through repudiation of errors, etc.? The answer is yes. He, he is not completely part of the church, but he is sufficiently part of the church in order to obtain eternal salvation. But now, you remember, there are many conditions that I put on that. So and no one should accuse me of saying, that uh, people, it doesn't matter what religion you belong to, you can go to heaven. That's not true. There are many conditions, and these conditions are difficult for, to fulfill. But it is possible, that's all we're saying, it is possible that someone adhere to the church in that manner. And that is a sufficient adherence in order that they gain eternal salvation. See, that's what the, the Catholic Church based on what St. Augustine said, but based also on reason and revelation. You know, it's a theological conclusion from what has been revealed. Many scriptural texts point to that. Uh, and uh, examples of the saints, examples of catechumens who died before they were received into the church uh, and who are canonized saints. Uh, St. Amarensiana, for one of them, it proves that this is true. So all of that proves it, uh, that this is true. However, what the modernists are saying is something entirely different, and that is that we're not talking about individuals who are laboring under error in good conscience. We're talking about their very false religions that are in partial communion with the Catholic Church because they have certain elements in common with the Catholic Church. That is totally false. It is condemned. The, those false religions are means of damnation. They are not means of salvation. And whatever they have uh, of truth in them either comes from natural truths concerning God, what can, we can re deduce from reason, or they have been <clears throat> taken from the Catholic Church. Cardinal Metzella would say stolen from the Catholic Church uh, when they left, for example, the Greek schismatics or the Protestants valid sacraments and other doctrines and other practices of the church. But to uplift these false religions as something that can get you to heaven or as having a partial communion with the Catholic Church is something utterly alien to Roman Catholicism. So that's the essential distinction that needs to be made in these, these sections of this article. But the modernists would object to you and he would say... Well, surely, my lord, you're not saying that there is no grace given outside the church. Actual graces are given outside the church all the time. Uh, otherwise, no one would ever become Catholic. The only way you could convert to the Catholic faith is by actual grace. Uh, and uh, so though that actual graces are very often given to those outside the church. However, you cannot be justified in your soul. That is, you cannot achieve the state of sanctifying grace except by belonging to the church in some way. Uh, and that's the way that I explained. Uh, now, Cardinal Franzelin says that, uh, he, he's a very, very great theologian, by the way, uh, that all of the grace given 
to those who are outside the church are in order to bring them to the church. So there is no possible salvation outside of the Catholic Church. You must in some way belong to the Catholic Church. Those other religions will draw you to hell because they negate whatever good they have, whether it's natural truth or, or even supernatural truth. They negate the effect of that by mixing it with all of their errors and their heresies. And they lead you down a path of error. And if you were to follow everything they said, you would go to hell. And that, that's, uh, so it's only, we say, by accident in, in theology that a person who is outside the church uh, can achieve these necessary acts by which they can be justified and by which they can pertain to the Catholic Church sufficiently in some way. Sufficient for salvation. That I'll read Cardinal Francelin. He says he was a 19th century Jesuit who was the main a theologian at the Council of the Vatican in 1870. So he, he's a very, very respected theologian, especially on the church. And he says, just as graces are granted outside the church to form members of the church, if men wish to cooperate with them, so all these graces can be most truly said to be given with a view to the church. Whoever therefore is brought to faith and charity outside the body of the church and thus seems able to be saved outside the church actually arrives at these supernatural dispositions and consequently to justification and salvation only through the word of the church as the guardian of the deposit and through the grace of the church. The church is not simply the dispenser of these graces, but is rather the proximate end for which and in view of which these graces are granted by God. That really says it all. See, so there is no idea of your Protestantism or your schism saving you. What saves you is the grace of God drawing you to his church, uh, drawing you to the truth, and drawing you to the necessary acts by which you can achieve justification and even salvation if you persevere in your justification. Justification means to transfer from the state of sin to the state of grace. That's what justification means. Okay, and then we move on to St. Augustine. And he has, a, he has a thing or two to say. Um, would you like to comment on what St. Augustine would say? He's saying essentially the same thing. Uh, that uh, He's talking about the Donatists. The Donatists were schismatics in, in North Africa. And uh, he, he's talking about them, and, and they broke away from the Catholic Church, but they broke away with valid sacraments and valid priesthood. Uh, so he's making the same point. Uh, and he's saying some things they have of the Catholic Church, some things they don't have the, of the Catholic Church. And it, essentially, if they're in good conscience being in that sect because they've been raised in it, uh, then God doesn't hold it against them. And that if he wants to come back to the church, he is healed uh, where he has erred, as St. Augustine says. Uh, so... Uh, he is healed where he was not healthy, that is, in the errors that he committed, but he nonetheless 
they retain certain truths. He does say uh, as well this, he says, there is one church which alone is called Catholic, and whenever it has anything of its own in these communions of different bodies which are separate from itself, it is most certainly in virtue of this which is its own in each of them that it and not they has the power of generation. See, so it is if someone has a valid baptism, has retained the valid sacrament of baptism, that's the church which is sanctifying. If if a schismatic priest performs a, a valid baptism, that's the church which is sanctifying the baby. It, it is it is not the action of the of the schismatic priest in the sense that it is doesn't come from schism. The, the a schismatic sect has no validity in the sight of God. It's just a group of people. There's no church. There's no no validity to their claim to church. They're just a group of schismatics, that's all. So they cannot say the schismatic church has has sanctified you or the schismatic church has saved you. They don't have the ability to sanctify. They don't have the ability to save. It's the Catholic church that has the ability to do so and when they use Catholic things, they sanctify. That's the point of St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. He continues, For neither is it their separation that generates, but what they have retained of the church. And if they were to abandon this, they would lose the power of generation. That means of, of sanctifying, especially by a baptism. The generation then, in each case, proceeds from the church. This is St. Augustine whose sacraments are retained from which any such birth can alone in any case proceed, meaning a birth into sanctifying grace. Although not all who receive its birth belong to its unity, which shall save those who persevere even to the end. But those who are too proud and who are not joined to their lawful mother are like Ishmael, of whom it is said, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, or the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. He continues, But those who peacefully love the lawful wife of their father, whose sons they are by lawful descent, are like the sons of Jacob, born indeed of handmaids, but yet receiving the same inheritance. What he means by that is that if you separate yourself so you get older you you've received a valid baptism as a baby you get older and through pride you refuse to enter the catholic church then you condemn yourself you are like the the children of ishmael but if through ignorance what we call invincible ignorance because you've been raised in schism or raised in heresy you uh think that you are belonging to the true religion and you want to belong to the true religion and have a disposition to embrace Catholicism if it were shown to you. In that case, you are like the sons of Jacob who were born of handmaids uh, receiving the same inheritance. That means you are in some way attached to the Catholic Church, owing to the fact that you are invincibly ignorant of its truth. In other words, that's the condition of it. Because you're not proud, you're just misled. It's remarkable, isn't it, that... The sort of people who would say, 
um, God is unjust to send people to hell, and uh, you know how how could a good God do such a thing? Um, these they're also often, very often the kind of person that strongly argues for the rule of law, and uh, and maybe I'm thinking particularly of uh, George Bush, the first one, uh, his speech about the new world order. But what I wrote next to in the in the margin next to this passage was, you know, why does how could a, a just God send people to hell? And it's because there are people who obey his laws and there are people who don't. <laughs> if, if he didn't punish the people who don't, he wouldn't be just. The common teaching of theologians, a universal teaching of theologians, that God gives the sufficient grace to every man to save his soul. So that means that if you go to hell, it's because you have in some way repudiated those graces. And we know how merciful God is and, and how much he wants people to be in heaven with him. We have to assume, therefore, that someone has repudiated those graces repeatedly in order that God send him to hell. I mean, you can think of people in your own entourage, so to speak, of people that you may know where, you know, what else would God do with them except send them to hell? I mean, they have no religion. They repudiate the very idea of religion. Their morals are abominable. Everything about them is wrong. Uh, they persevere in this. Uh, they resist every every attempt to convert them. What else would you do with these people? <laughs> if, if, if you were the judge, what what is there in them that would cause you to have mercy? So those are the people that go to hell. The, the ones that have repudiated time and time again the grace of God drawing their consciences to what is right and true and good and, and to the church. And the other thing is that salvation is not a matter of justice. It's a gift. God does not owe the human race salvation. Not at all. The, the sinful state of man is justly treated by eternal damnation. And it is a teaching of the church that a person cannot, without the grace of God, persevere long in good works. Uh, he cannot persevere long in virtue, virtuous works, without the grace of God. Or he cannot have all of the virtues. That, that without the grace of God, he will eventually sin and sin mortally without the actual grace of God. So if someone repudiates, especially repeatedly, the grace of God, uh, that means that, that he has been given all of the means necessary to achieve eternal salvation and has rejected them. God does not owe man anything. So he is not unjust in depriving man of eternal salvation when especially he has repudiated those means of salvation. So, if we move on a little, with uh, if there is a valid distinction to be made um, in communion, as Saint Augustine says, and Cardinal Franzelin says, there is points out that the Church generates its own natural children in non-Catholic sects. So, the question is: What about infants baptized in non-Catholic sects? Are they members of the body of the Church, or the soul of the Church, or both? <laughs> If an infant is validly baptized outside the church, let's say by a Greek Orthodox or by a Protestant, 
even a Jew, in the case of perhaps a Jewish doctor who uh, baptizes a, a baby that is dying, which is not unusual, uh, he, that's a Catholic baptism because he's doing it for the Catholic party that, that is requesting it. Uh, that baby belongs in all respects to the Catholic Church. There's no distinction to be made uh, because that is the effect of baptism. The first effect is to release the soul from original sin, but its second effect is to uh, enroll the, the child, the soul and the body and the soul of the child in the Catholic Church uh, to, uh, to make him part of the mystical body. And that perseveres until he achieves the age of reason when he is presumed to adhere to the sect that his parents are in or his guardians or whoever else is raising him. He is presumed. Now, we don't know what's going on in his mind. He might be in good conscience. He may not know any better, but the church never judges concerning those things it judges only in externals when he has achieved the age of reason around seven years old. He is presumed by the Catholic Church to adhere to the sect in which he finds himself. And, and then he, if he should die in that sect, the Catholic Church would not grant him a funeral, obviously. It makes no judgment of, at all about what was going on in his mind, whether he was invincibly ignorant or had a, uh, a guilty ignorance. Only, only God knows those things, and the church judges only by where you find yourself, and that's the, in that sect. And therefore, the Catholic Church says that those who are outside the Catholic Church cannot go to heaven. It means that in this sense that those who are outside of the Catholic Church through their own fault cannot go to heaven. That's what that means. But it also says that God doesn't condemn people who have no fault in being outside of the Catholic Church, that that would be against his justice. If they have never received sufficient instruction, if they have never been sufficiently exposed to Catholicism, it's not their fault. God does not condemn those people, at least for that sin. He might, they might commit other sins, but not for that sin. Because for them, it's not a sin because they, they were in ignorance about it. But the, the Catholic Church makes no judgment about that whatsoever. And therefore, you have the formulas of Florence, etc., that anyone who is outside the Catholic Church will be condemned to hell because it's talking about only the external forum. That is, the fact that they belong to a sect means that they cannot, by external judgment, achieve eternal salvation. And this is where the Feniites really mess it up because they see those texts and they say, oh, there it is. You know, if you're outside the Catholic Church, there's no possible way that you could achieve eternal salvation. And that's not the sense of those texts. Just like, uh, you know, murder is against the law. If you shoot uh, an innocent person, that's against the law that makes you guilty in, in, in certain states of the United States of capital punishment. Uh, but if you can prove that you did so in all ignorance, that you thought it was a burglar and in fact it was your husband, uh, uh, and that's a, a true case, uh, if you did that in all ignorance, that is not held against you. But those are exceptional cases and what we say by accident. 
but it remains true that the that murder is is evil, and those who commit murder go to to the electric chair or the whatever they do now. I think the electric chair is finished in this country. Uh, that that's that's the law, and that's exactly what the church is saying when it says those who are outside the Catholic Church go to hell. It is presuming that they are outside the Catholic Church through their own fault, which is the general presumption of law and the external forum. All right, so um, so that's a very important point for everyone to uh, understand. Um, so I, I brought into this article various uh, statements um, from from the Catholic Church and also from uh, from the modernists. Uh, uh, for example, De Grote, he's a Dominican who wrote around the turn of the last century. He says, heretics and schismatics, if they err in good faith, are incomplete members of the church. Perfectly, if they have kept charity along with faith, that means if they're in the state of sanctifying grace, and imperfectly, if they only have faith. For these sorts of heretics and schismatics adhere implicitly to the church, which they would obey explicitly if they were instructed. That is the Catholic doctrine. See, the the Fenites go crazy when they hear that, but that's too bad. Uh, <laughs> um, the Now, listen to John Paul II uh, talking about Assisi, and, and uh, he was, Assisi had not taken place yet, but he had ecumenical meetings uh, in, um, in, in Africa in 1981. He said, in these truly plenary gatherings, the ecclesial communities of different countries make, the re- make real the fundamental second chapter of Lumen Gentium, which treats of the numerous spheres of belonging to the church as people of God and of the bond which exists with it, even on the part of those who do not yet form a part of it. All right, what he is referring to is the ecclesial communities. That's a whole other thing because those those non-Catholic sects, that's what they would have been called in the in the old days, non-Catholic sects, uh, they are presumed to be outside of the church and they do not belong to it in any sense whatsoever as a sect. See, this, this has, they have nothing to do with the Catholic Church. And I, I quote various, I quote Pope Leo XIII and Pope Pius IX saying that. Pope Pius IX says, none, he's referring to these different religious societies among themselves and separated from the Catholic Church, none, not even taken as a whole, constitutes in any way and are not that one Catholic Church founded and made by our Lord and which he wished to create. Further, one cannot say in any way that these societies are either members or parts of that same church because they are visibly separated from Catholic unity. Now, that's as about as explicit as you could get. Pope Leo XIII said, Jesus Christ never conceived of nor instituted a church formed of many communities which were brought together by certain general traits, but which would be distinct one from another and not bound together among themselves by ties which make the church 
one and indivisible, since we clearly profess in the creed of our faith, I believe in one church. So he destroys that idea of ecclesial communities forming in some way belonging to the church. Pius IX, again, it is absurd and ridiculous to say that the mystical body can be formed out of separated and disjunct members. And he says, it is to depart from divine truth, that means it's heresy, to imagine that a church which one can neither see nor touch, which would be nothing more than spiritual, in which numerous Christian communities would be united by an invisible bond, even though they are divided in faith. I mean, that just puts a torpedo in the side of the modernist ecclesiology, the modernist ideas about the church. It, it, it blows up ecumenism. You know, it's like the Lusitania. You know, it just goes down. And, and uh, so it's a very important point. Um, Cardinal Mazzella, uh, he has an interesting uh, point about the schismatics. He says, those sacraments which heretics retain in their sects, and schismatics too, are like plunder which they brought with them when they left the church, but which belong to the church. A servant who runs away can bring his master's money with him, and a soldier can take away the flag of the emperor. But just as these would not on that account still be in the family or the army, so heretics are no longer in the church. Very important point. And he also says, for societies of schismatics are certainly not the universal church because they were never spread out everywhere, nor can they be considered a kind of part of the universal church because in the beginning of the schism, they either left her or were expelled from her and they remained separated from her. See, what the modernists would like to do is to uh, have a church that is separate from the structures of the Catholic Church. See, they, they want the, the church, uh, the, the Church of Christ, to be bigger than the structures of the Catholic Church. The structures of the Catholic Church are what the Church of Christ subsists in. See, that's Vatican II. That the, that the Catholic Church is an expression of this Church of Christ. It has, it structuralizes it. It makes it visible. See, but that they are not one and the same thing. That this Church of Christ is this sum total of baptized Christians who make up all of these people who look with faith toward Jesus. That's a Vatican II. And, and have this uh, sort of amalgam church. Uh, uh, of all sorts of uh, something like the European Union, uh, the uh, it, it's a just a, a glued together bunch of schismatics and heretics, uh, and that that has always been condemned. Uh, this Father de Groot, that's the Father de Groot is the the book we use for ecclesiology at the seminary. Uh, he says it uh, it is of the greatest importance when we say, and everywhere one. He's talking about the unity of the church. Indeed, if unity is lacking, then it is not a Catholic church that is seen, but churches condemned to a counterfeit Catholicity. For material Catholicity is of no use, but formal is required. That means it's of no use simply to multiply yourself throughout the world. 
you have to multiply the same thing everywhere. Just like Coca-Cola is the same, whether it's in China or Atlanta, Georgia. It's the same. That's a formal unity that it has. It's always the same. Whereas if a, if a church does not have formal unity, the same doctrines, the same rites, the same disciplines, it's, and where it's just a bunch of different Christian churches, you, you don't have either unity or Catholicity, which are two marks of the church. And he, he continues, for this reason, St. Thomas says, what is believed by all the faithful is one and the same thing. You can't say that about the Novus Ordo. Therefore, it is said to be one or universal. It's the end of St. Thomas's quote. And de Groot continues, and because the unity of faith cannot be conceived of if you take away a single rule, meaning one of the dogmas of the faith, it is as clear as day that the mark of Catholicity depends on a certain center of ecclesiastical unity, which of course is Rome. So that's a very important point. So, you know, this, uh, the, the, the Vatican II idea is something utterly contrary to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church concerning itself and concerning the true Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. Just prior to the, those quotations, you'd also attacked the modernist idea on the on the principle that it undermines the unity, holiness, catholicity, and apostolicity of the church. Well, there are a few sections underlined, but one of them was all non-Catholic sects repudiate papal authority as the supreme authority of Christ's church, and there is no partial bond here either. Rather, the very principle of the Church's unity of government is utterly ruined by the rejection of papal authority. Yes, the papal authority is, is an absolute element necessary for the Catholic Church and the Church of Christ. He said, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Therefore, if your church is not resting on the rock of Peter, it's a false church. If it does cannot trace its lineage to Peter, and if you are not subject to the successor of Peter, you are in a false church. Uh, to give the term church, or in some way to give a, uh, a legitimacy to some sort of sect which does not recognize the true, true church, uh, the true and legitimate authority of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, and particularly of St. Peter, is to destroy the Catholic Church. It is not the church that Christ found. It is something else. It, it, it has become a sect. To show that it destroys the holiness of the church, you say partial communion with non-Catholic sects is furthermore contrary to the church's holiness since it places the church in unison with sects that teach unholy doctrines. Yes, absolutely. Divorce and remarriage, which now has in, come into the Novus Ordo Church, but Yes, many other evil doctrines and and evil morals uh, that uh, are preached by those churches and and taught as as things that are that are legitimate to perform birth control everything. I mean, it, it, the once you have a, a scripture alone as your basis and private interpretation of scripture as your basis, you can come up with anything. And there's no pastor, there's no council, there's you know no Church of England who can tell you that you're wrong, because you are your own little pop with that Bible in your hand. And so 
it, yes, it destroys the the holiness of the church because those uh, false religions can justify anything, and they do justify anything by means of their private interpretation of Scripture. Finally, you point out that the founders of those religions were not noted for their holiness. You mention Martin Luther and Henry VIII. Uh, yes, Martin and Luther, an... let the maid come in. You know, if, if, you're, <laughs> if you're having trouble with your wife, uh, he said, let the maid come in. Everyone knows what that means. In other words, uh, take the maid as a mistress. And then Henry VIII, uh, yes, I, I quoted that wonderful statement of Father Randolph, uh, that immortal statement, calling him a rotting mass of syphilis. Uh, you know, we, we don't even have to get into <laughs> the, the morals uh, of Henry VIII. Uh, or lack of, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody knows that. But that's uh, Father Randolph, who was a convert from Anglicanism uh, and who d- despised it with all his soul, uh, <laughs> called Henry VIII. <laughs> that rotting mass of syphilis, and he said it in a great British accent. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it sounded wonderful. He was a great speaker, and, you know, he just knew how to say things. (laughs) And finally, you demonstrate that the uh, partial communion is against the Catholicity of the Church. You, You say, we write... Partial communion is contrary to the church's Catholicity since, as all apologists clearly explain, no non-Catholic sect is Catholic since they are confined to a certain place or time and, lacking unity, cannot be Catholic since Catholicity presupposes unity. Yes. So, yeah, the, the Greek Orthodox are are meant, f- that's meant for Greeks and the Russian Orthodox is meant for Russians. The Anglican Church is meant for British peoples and and for the empire and uh, why you have to be in some way in communion with with England in order to be in communion with God escapes me. They they have (laughs) confined themselves to uh, lack of Catholicity, whereas the Catholic Church never became anything it wasn't the italian church and that's why the popes fought against the idea of becoming part of italy they wanted to make the keep the church universal that it's catholic it's not the church of italy and italy has nothing to say to the catholic church and it has no business having anything to do with the catholic church uh, as a state or dictating to the catholic church and and the Catholic Church has gone into every land and has taken on the culture of that land. As I've said many times, Catholicism is quite different in Spain from what it is in England. You know, they, you don't see those those processions with with statues that are all decorated and people all dressed up. <laughs> in England, it just doesn't go, and all of the external. Uh, somewhat emotional uh, uh, ways or the architecture of Catholic churches in Spain is nothing like the architecture of Catholic churches in England. Uh, the mentality is totally different, but it, it is, and that's the beauty of the church that it goes in, it senses the the mentality of the people, it adapts to it and it becomes the 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 church of that land and at the same time retains all of its catholic unity and there's that that attachment to rome and the 
the uh, all of the, the 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 faith is the same. So you could go, you know, not today, but in, before the council, you could go to Spain and and say, well, you know, this is not what I'm used to, but I I can see this is the Catholic Mass and they're preaching Catholic doctrine and this is the Catholic Church. That's the beauty of Catholicism. You don't have to be Greek to belong to it. You don't have to eat baklava or or other other Mediterranean things. Uh, you don't have to be Russian to belong to it. You know, you don't have to be subject to the patriarch of Moscow. Uh, uh, all they have put their own culture, uh, a, a pull of their own culture upon Christianity, uh, becoming essentially state religions and state religions in the sen- in a bad sense. In other words, that culturally English or or culturally Russian or culturally Greek or and so forth, it ruins Catholicity. And the Catholic Church is the only church in the history of the world that did such a thing, that became all things to all men, so to speak, and at the same time retained uh, its its Catholicity, its unity, unity of everything essential. Uh, we have a Mexican – well, now he's an American. He's an American citizen, uh, but of Mexican origin in Detroit. And Detroit is has a lot of Polish people in it, and he would have – Come December 12th, this big picture of Our Lady of Guadalupe and all of the devotions to Our Lady of Guadalupe. And I said to him, if you were in Mexico and you put up pictures of Our Lady of Shenstahova, do you think that people would appreciate the devotion to Our Lady of Shenstahova? That's the big Polish devotion. He said, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I said, well, then take the... Take the lesson that that you know if you're among Polish uh, people, you you have to adapt yourself to the Polish, and so forth. You know, if I went to Mexico, I would have to you know be I mean, not that I don't have a devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, but it's not it's not something that you would typically see in the average American church. You might see it in New Mexico or or Arizona. Uh, where there's a lot of people from Mexico. Uh, the same as in England. I mean, you, you wouldn't think of putting up a picture of Our Lady of Guadalupe in a in a church in England, you know, it, or Shenstahova either. I mean, it's just, you know, unless you had a lot of Poles, there's a lot of Poles in England. But I'm just pointing out the, the church's ability to adapt to culture, which is the beauty uh, of the Catholic Church, that it does adapt to each culture, at the same time maintaining her unity. And, you know, St. Augustine of Canterbury uh, was, was uh, very, uh, and he was told that by St. Gregory, retain whatever you can from among the customs of the English people. You know, don't go in with all of these, you know, demands that they give up this and give up that. Whatever you can retain of their customs, whatever is decent in their customs, retain. So, yeah, and and that's, uh, that's what the church did in all cases. It, uh, and, and that's the beauty of the Catholic Church. That's why it became so big. Uh, no one feels uh, as if they're outside. Uh, and, that, and you can see through the, uh, through the trappings of the culture all of the things that you know pertain to the essence of the Catholic faith. Uh, so, it, it, so unity and Catholicity go very much together. Uh, that, that there must be one thing that is spread all over the world. That's, that's unity and Catholicity. If you don't have unity, you can't have Catholicity because you need that one thing. If Coca-Cola were different in Hong Kong from what it is in Atlanta, Georgia, 
<laughs> if it tasted like orange soda, uh, or I don't know what you even call it in England. In other words, if it had a totally different taste, it could be called Coca-Cola, but it's not the same thing. See, there is a certain catholicity about Coca-Cola. It's the same everywhere. <laughs> uh, and and uh, no matter where you find it, it's the same. Uh, so, that, I mean, it's it's an, an analogy, but... Uh, the uh, I say Atlanta, Georgia, because that is the uh, headquarters of Coca-Cola. I don't know if you know that. Oh, I see. No, I didn't. <laughs> Every day is a school day. <laughs> okay, we would we would like to remind you that you are listening to the Anti-Modernist Reader, Chapter Six. This is Part Three of Communion: Rats Against New Ecclesiology on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I am your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I am joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Today we've been discussing the nature of communion in the Vatican II sect. We want to remind you that this anti-modernist reader show is a production of the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.com. So, from the Catholic Church being all things to all men and the greatest support of culture and government wherever it's gone, we are now going to move to one of the greatest destroyers of government and culture wherever he's managed to uh, pop up. I speak, of course, of JP2. So... <laughs> JP2 says, and I quote, this is from Redemptor Ominis on page 121. Does it not sometimes happen that the firm belief of the followers of the non-Christian religions, a belief that is also an effect of the spirit of truth operating outside the visible confines of the mystical body, can make Christians ashamed would you like to address that one first or should we do the next quotation no we'll say that this is loaded with with error (laughs) uh the uh notice the firm belief of the followers of non-christian religions that means jews muslims and and african religions you know uh, of voodoo and various other spiritist religions all right, uh, Buddhists, Confucianists, Shintoists, uh, Polynesian religions, all right, all of those, they're the firm belief, a belief that is also an effect of the spirit of truth. <laughs> the spirit of truth, which urges them to believe that Christ is not God, to reject Christ as the true Messiah to uh, worship snakes uh, as they do in Africa and all sorts of other idols in India and and all over the place that this is an effect of the spirit of truth. How does the spirit of truth move you to worship an idol or a snake or to reject Christ as the true Messiah? How does that work? I mean, this is is heresy and nonsense operating outside the visible confines of the mystical body. Notice the, the complete contradiction with what Cardinal Franzelin says. 
when the when the spirit of truth operates outside of the visible confines of the mystical body, that he is drawing you to the mystical body, namely the Roman Catholic Church. But this is to say that he is drawing you actually into the false religions. And that makes Christians ashamed. Now, I don't care what Christians do, and by Christians I mean Catholics. I don't care if they're the worst sinners in the world. They should not be ashamed of their religion, that they have the true faith. The people that should be ashamed are, are those people who adhere to false religions. But you, you see the, how the, the you have to understand modernism. Modernism says that dogma doesn't really matter. What matters is your relationship to God, that God is in every man. And that he, he makes himself manifest in different ways to different people. That's why you have differences of religion, because people in different cultures and so forth come up with these different ideas about God. But it's all the same. Those, those different ideas, the conflict of dogmas, really don't mean much. What counts is your confidence in God, your, your experience of God. See, so... That's what he's saying the spirit of truth does in these people. And, and that, that, you know, Christians should be ashamed, my goodness. Then he says in, in Catechesi Tradende, which was a, a 1980 or 1981 uh, encyclical about mm. catechizing children. He says, it is extremely important to give a correct and fair presentation of the other churches and ecclesial communities that the spirit of Christ does not refrain from using them as means of salvation. That's a blatant heresy. It repeats Vatican II. It, it, it repeats the decree on ecumenism. That's a blatant heresy because mm. it is a dogma of the Catholic Church that outside the Catholic Church there is no salvation. That means that the Catholic Church is the unique means of salvation in the world, and that you must pertain, at least in some way, to the Catholic Church. We talked about how those ways are possible in order to be saved. Right? To say that these churches and ecclesial communities, as they are churches, as they are ecclesial communities, in other words, heretical and schismatical sects, that's, what, that's the, you know, the Catholic way to read that, that other heretical and schismatical sects that the Spirit of Christ does not refrain from using them as a means of salvation. Means of salvation, that, that's like the bridge that goes over the, the turbulent waters. Or that's like an airplane that flies from New York to London. In other words, it has to have everything to make it. It has to, the, the, it has to have all of the means inside itself to, to make that long trip. So also... Only the true church of Christ can be the means of salvation. Those other churches, those, those non-Catholic religions, are means of damnation because they have all of the means necessary to drag you to hell. They are means of damnation. If they have anything of truth in them or anything that sanctifies souls, such as a valid baptism, it is because they have taken them, as I said, either from natural truths of religion or from the Catholic church. But, you know, if you get on a plane that has, has only one engine and no landing gear, you know, you're, uh, and the windows are blown out, you're not going to make it. <laughs> because 
it doesn't it doesn't have the means no matter what good it has if it has one engine you know you're not going to make it to the end of the runway well you will but you're going you're not going to go up at the end of the runway you know there's whatever whatever is good in those religions has been taken from the catholic church or from natural religion whatever is good in them is does not constitute a means of salvation that's my point any more than elements of an aircraft are going to get you where you're going you know as i as i said in another article imagine if you know an airline advertised that we have elements of aircraft you see that that and then they showed something which you know it looks like an aircraft under construction that we have elements of aircraft i mean who would take that (laughs) you'd have to be insane to get on such a plane and the same thing is true of these non-Catholic religions. Yes, they have certain elements that have been stolen from the Catholic Church, but that doesn't mean that they're means of salvation. Not at all. It means that by their sacrilegious use, in certain cases of Catholic sacraments, they are a means of the sanctification of the babies that they baptize, but that sacrilegious use of that Catholic sacrament is a sin for the schismatic priest who uses it. Pius VI said that about the constitutional priest in France, that it was wrong to bring your your child to a constitutional priest because they are schismatics and it is a sin for you and you are the occasion of sin for him because he cannot legitimately give those sacraments. See, so, you know, the church is, is as clear as day on this. So this doctrine that is contained in Catechesi Tridende is a heresy. It contradicts what Pius IX says in the syllabus. He condemned the proposition, man may, in the observance of any religion whatever, find the way of eternal salvation and arrive at eternal salvation. That's a condemned doctrine. And in the uh, encyclical Singulari Quadam of 1854, He says, it must be believed by faith that no one can be saved outside the apostolic Roman church, that this is the one ark of salvation, and he who does not enter into this ark will perish in the flood. Uh, You can't get any more explicit than that. And that means those who who remain out of it through their own fault will go to hell. And I point out in the article, this theory is heretical because it separates the mystical body of Christ from the body of the Catholic Church, as if you could somehow be attached to Christ by means of anything else but the Roman Catholic Church, body and soul. It must be remembered that even those who are sanctified outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church are sanctified by belonging in reality to the soul of the Catholic Church, and in desire to the body of the Catholic Church. See, that, that's, that's an absolute requirement. Thus, there is no church which is in any way different from the body of the Catholic Church. There is no people of God which is not identified with the body of the Roman Catholic Church. There is no Christ's faithful to be found outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. You cannot dispense with the Catholic Church in calling someone Christian. Pius XII said that the only true Christians are Catholics. 
You cannot separate Christianity from the Catholic Church. And that the, the church makes no judgment about the interior goodwill or invincible ignorance of heretics, but rather legally presumes them to be formally what they profess to be, and that is heretics. And Cardinal Francelin confirms that. He says, and this is a quote, in the external forum, all those who have received the full use of reason and still persevere in heretical sects are presumed and considered by the church to be heretics. So it, it, there it is. You know, and so you know, this doctrine of Vatican II is, is, is a contradiction of Catholic doctrine. It's heretical. Okay. We move on then to part five, which is the branch theory. Now, we've mentioned the branch theory and we've discussed it briefly on other shows. Um, and people who listen to this radio uh, show regularly will not be, this will not be new to them. But could we quickly just go over what the branch theory is, where it came from, and, uh, and, and how uh, Cardinal, was it Pacelli, was it? Patrizzi, how, how he dealt with it. Oh, was it Mudson? <laughs> yeah, that was in another show. But yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't particularly ecumenical towards Anglicans, as I remember. Uh, no. <laughs> no, uh, we, I think we talked about it in another show. I, you know, when you're a one-man show like I am, uh, you're going to hear some repetition here, there, and the other place. So uh, just bear up uh, because uh, sometimes it's just required to do the same explanation in one show as you've done in another. But don't forget that repetition is the mother of learning. So the more you hear it, the more it gets into the brain. The branch theory was cooked up by Anglicans, obviously in England, during the 19th century, who uh, were sort of infected a little bit by, maybe infected is the wrong word, influenced by the movement, the Oxford movement, what is known as the Oxford movement. Uh, Cardinal Newman is the most uh, famous effect of of the Oxford movement. But there were many English intellectuals who made the the jump to Roman Catholicism and others who did not go so far as to become Catholics, but who expressed a great interest in the Catholic Church. And these are the ones that wanted to see some sort of accommodation to Anglicanism. They wanted to remain Anglicans and at the same time be connected to the Catholic Church in some way. And so they came up with something called the branch theory, and that is that the universal church consisted of three branches, the Roman Catholic, the Orthodox, and the Anglicans. All right, And although these three are not in communion one with the other, they are nevertheless part of the universal church. See, this invisible church that is bound not by government and not by submission to the Roman pontiff, but this universal church uh, with different doctrines, different governments, uh, but bound together by some sort of invisible bond. These Anglicans identified the universal church with the mystical body of Christ. You see, that was... That was an invisible thing, uh, and, and the, the different communions were, were just part of this big invisible church. Now, Cardinal Metzella, in his uh, treatise on the church, quotes an Anglican by the name of Lytton. And this sounds just like Ratzinger. Now, this is 19th century stuff. This is the quote. Particular churches separated in some ways are one because of 
of a common relation to the one true church, that is, the mystical body of Christ, and by its connection to it. That is Ratzinger. He he distinguishes the Church of Christ from the Catholic Church. The Church of Christ is this big mystical body to which all of these particular churches belong and is the sum total of these particular churches. That would include the the Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and all of that. Uh, He got into trouble, Ratzinger, by excluding the Anglicans from that because he said they don't have a valid priesthood. So he calls them ecclesial communities. So that really got him in trouble with the Anglicans. Uh, So that'll be solved before long. But nonetheless, they're all part of this big church, Uh, although they cannot be called particular churches because they don't have a valid Eucharist. And so so that that's that's Ratzinger's big church, you know the big tent church. You know it's, this is this is all condemned in the nineteenth century. And by the way, the idea of partial communion comes from a, uh, a Protestant friend of Ratzinger. He probably had quite a few of them. Uh, Saint Thomas says uh, um, similarity is the basis of all love. Right, so he probably had quite a few Protestant friends, but that was Kuhlmann who cooked up this idea of partial communion, that, that because you have some things in common, you, you have therefore a partial communion. No Catholic document and no Catholic theologian ever spoke about that in the past. That was something concocted by Protestants. Protestants, ever since the Reformation, have been striving to put themselves together. They are like Humpty Dumpty. Uh, does that ring a bell with you in England? Story of Humpty Dumpty who fell off the wall and they, they try to put them back together. Protestants for centuries have been trying to put themselves together and unsuccessfully. So they come up with all of these crazy theories. Well, you know, we agree on some things and we don't agree on others. And that's where he got this idea of partial communion. Uh, and it's a concoction of Vatican II. Partial communion is as impossible as it would be impossible to be a little pregnant. See, if if a woman's if a woman said, "Well, I'm somewhat pregnant, or I'm partially pregnant," and the reason is that either you are or you're not. <laughs> in the case of pregnancy, and in the case of the church, is if you're missing one element, then you're not. You know, see, if, if you are missing the, the government of the church, if you're missing the, the unity of faith of the church or any of the essential elements of the Catholic church, then, then you're not anything because all of those things cohere and, and are dependent one on the other. If you remove one, it's like taking a card out of a card house. The whole thing falls down. The unity of the Catholic Church does not admit of degrees or partiality. Uh, so, there's, there's an interesting sentence here that I picked up. You, you'd uh, written what Cardinal Mazzella had said. And you've written, when schism occurs within this universal church, that is, when one church breaks off from another, as in the case of the Orthodox and the Anglicans with regard to the Roman Catholic Church, The separation is not total and perfect, nor is it even a separation from the Roman Catholic Church in as much as it is true. Now, to me, that sounds like they're hedging their bets. They're not really sure. 
Let's just let me read this. According to the Cardinal, they say that the unity of government of the Catholic Church is better and possibly even falls under precept, but is in no way essential and therefore can, can be absent without detriment to being the church. When schism, this is what the Anglicans are saying, when schism occurs within this universal church, that is when one church breaks off from another, as in the case of the Orthodox and the Anglicans with regard to the Roman Catholic Church, the separation is not total and perfect. See, that's the idea of partiality. Nor is it even a separation from the Roman Catholic Church in as much as it is true, but only in as much as it has been corrupted in the area of faith and morals. See, so they are saying, you know, we agree with all of the things that we find right in you. We disagree with all of the things that we find wrong in you. That's exactly what the Society of St. Pius X says with regard to the person whom they say is the Pope of Rome. Uh, Therefore, there remains, according to this branch theory, an essential communion in those things which are true and right, whereas communion is rejected in the area of erroneous doctrine, in superstitious worship, or tyrannical rule. So that's exactly the, the model of Vatican II ecclesiology. So that and and you can hold to all of those things in the Vatican II religion, and and consider yourself impartial communion and all of this nonsense. So uh, and I I do mention that Society mm-hmm. Saint Pius X uses that very theory that that the Anglicans use with regard to the Catholic Church. So Cardinal Patrizzi, who was the head of the Holy Office under Pius IX, wrote a letter in 1864 forbidding Catholics to take part in this association for promoting the union of Christendom, which was founded by these Anglican divines. And he says the members of the group are called upon to say prayers and offer masses, quote-unquote, for the intention that the three, quote, Christian communities, namely those which, as it is supposed, taken altogether already constitute the Catholic Church, eventually come together to form one body. And so he, he excluded any kind of participation, Catholic participation in that. So after they got that message back, 198 Anglican divines wrote to Cardinal Patrizzi asking him to reconsider. And they said that they wanted nothing else than, quote, ecumenical intercommunion, which existed before the schism of East and West. And Cardinal Patrizzi responded this, the sacred congregation vehemently regrets that you should happen to think that those Christian groups are parts of the true church of Jesus Christ, which boasts that they have the inheritance of a priesthood and the name of Catholic, even though they are separated from the apostolic see of Peter. Nothing could be more, now listen to this, nothing could be more averse to the true notion of the Catholic church so he's really, I mean, he's saying this, this ruins the Catholic Church, this, this branch theory, this idea of partial communion. It, nothing could be more averse to the true notion of the Catholic Church. And he quotes St. Paul, for the Catholic Church is that which is founded on the one Peter and which forms one body connected and compacted together by unity of faith and charity. And remember what Pius XI said, if you people are so solicitous about Christian unity, well, why don't you come back to the Catholic Church? Why don't you convert? 
It's so easy. You can have it, you know, this afternoon. You could just convert to the Catholic Church and all will be well. But they 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 want this this invisible church uh, and they want to continue in their schism or in their heresies, as the case may be. Then in 1870, there was uh, distributed a schema on the church. It is so sad that this was never voted on. The, the Vatican Council of 1870 was supposed to vote on this schema of the church and it couldn't because of the Franco-Prussian War, which required France to draw out its troops from Rome to fight in the war. Uh, many think, and very probably it's true, that one of Bismarck's motives in starting that war was to put an end to the Vatican Council. He was avidly, ferociously anti-Catholic, Bismarck. He was a Freemason and just dreadfully anti-Catholic. But in any case, this was the uh, the schema that was distributed and most probably would have been approved of, you know, perhaps with various little, little changes in it, but uh, it's a wonderful schema. This is what it says. If anyone shall say that the true church is not one body in itself, but consists of various dissident societies calling themselves Christian, see how it says that, and is diffused through these groups, or that various societies disagreeing among themselves about the profession of faith and separated in communion constitute the one universal church of Christ as members or parts, let him be anathema. You could not get a text that is more radically and directly opposed to the Ratzingerian idea of the church. I think we're going to cut the show off there because that's the that's the end of the uh, parts that we said we would look review today. And the in the next show and the final show we will go over Ratzinger's document on communion and how it is explicitly heretical. Um we will review the document in general and uh, talk about ecumenism um in particular. Uh I would recommend that people read this document it's fairly long but it's very good the footnotes provide more information there's a, a length there are lengthy footnotes um on page 124 and 125 of the book which i would recommend people read um because it adds a bit more body to it so if we cut it off there i would like to just thank your lordship for your time in being with us today is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out this episode? Oh, not really. I think we've done a job on, on Ratzinger's ecclesiology. <laughs> uh, I, the church has done a job. I mean, I've just quoted things that the church has said. Uh, uh, no, just that people not be deceived by by a man walking around in a white cassock in the Vatican who says that he's the Pope when these things are, are part of their doctrines. And ecumenism, don't forget, is at the very bottom of all of this stuff. Uh, that is to put all of the churches together. That is that is Vatican II. That was the motive of Vatican II. So we're really looking at the very meat of the problem. The new mass came in because of Vatican II. And Vatican II was called because of ecumenism. So the new mass is the product of ecumenism. Religious liberty is the product of ecumenism. Uh, all of this ecclesiology is the product of ecumenism, collegiality, all of the things that are infecting 
our Catholic institutions today come from the spirit of ecumenism. That ecumenism must go, that it has to die, uh, and belief in the one true church must live and be continued. Uh, today I had a, pro- a conversation with a Protestant, and we, we went back and forth about Protestantism and all. And at the end, he came out with the, the universal golden heresy. And that is that, you know, we all worship God in a different way. It's the same God. We all worship him differently. <laughs> they all finish with that. It's, it's like the chorus at the end of the play. You know, it, it's the, and that's ecumenism. And uh, he was fixing my printer. And uh, I didn't have an opportunity to get into it beyond that. Uh, but, you know, that, that's just like the end of the show is, well, we all worship the same God and we just, you know, know him differently and so forth. I think it's their way of trying trying to be reassuring and just saying, oh, you know, we, we might disagree, but we can still be friends and all the rest of it. But I don't think so. I think it's more than that. I, I really do think that that is a type of super dogma that overrides everything, that it doesn't matter what your dogmas are because we all have our own experience of God. That is the modern heresy. The dogmas are not important. We just saw uh, that, that Bishop Pozzo, who's, re, who's orchestrating the reconciliation of SSPX, uh, that uh, life is more than dogmas, or, or uh, what, how did he say it? You know, life is bigger than dogmas, something like that that the difference in doctrine between SSPX and the Novus Ordo uh, should not be a source of, of irritation because we can go beyond doctrine. And I, I think that's the idea. I think that that sits in people's minds today, that it doesn't matter what religion you belong to, or even if you have a religion, it doesn't, you, everyone in, in his own way knows God and it does, the rest of it doesn't matter. That is a, a pernicious doctrine. I get I get a lot of I'm spiritual but not religious. That comes out a lot. Yes, yes, and I think that's the whole idea of that. Also, the you know, the text that you sent me, I'm just as we're talking about this reconciliation, the text that you sent me from the uh, the uh, district newsletter of Great Britain, the SSPX district newsletter of Great Britain, is absolutely appalling. Uh, let me read it for people who who have not seen it. Now, this is the quote. Now, both the old mass and the new mass, when celebrated properly with the right intention and by an ordained priest, are both the same sacrifice of Calvary made present in a sacramental manner. They are both perfect in this regard. Where they differ is in the non-essential signs each employs to point us to an understanding and reverence of the reality. I mean, if that's the only thing that we've been fighting for for the past 40-some years is a a different way in which we are pointed toward reverence and reality between the old mass and the new mass. I mean, that is so appalling to me, but it, it manifests this idea that it really doesn't matter. That that statement to me has all the hallmarks of an official statement, and I suspect that they had to come up with some mm. sort of uh, uh, compromise like that in order to be received into the Novus Ordo religion. Uh, they they have to in some, some way accept the new mass. 
that's a direct quote from the district superior of the SSPX in Great Britain. So if that's what the district superiors are saying, I think it's it's fair to say that that's uh, universally held in that organization. He would never say that. He would never go out on that limb without the approval or, or even the encouragement of his superiors in Mensingen, meaning Bishop Philly, in my opinion. Uh, I don't think any district superior would say something like that. And it has that ring of a, an official well-worded statement. You know, it's not something that you would say off the cuff. Uh, it's, it's very carefully worded. And, and uh, that I think that's all part of this idea that, that doctrine doesn't matter. I mean, Archbishop Fever, I remember him back in 1971 when I first met with him in March of 71, which is a long time ago, almost 50 years ago. Uh, he said, we have to retain the traditional mass and, and the mass is everything and we cannot accept this new mass. He was clear as, a, as day on that. And I was uh, impressed by it. I never, you know, I, while I lamented the the new mass, I figured it's here to stay, you know, nothing much we can do about it. But but he was insistent, and all during my time at Acon and after that, he was always insistent on how evil the new mass was. And he called it the mass of Luther. You know, and now these people are saying that the only difference is the way in which it points out the realities of, of the mass to us. Yeah, as if there's many roads to 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 grandma's house. <laughs> yeah, it's that same spirit of ecumenism. You say the mass of Luther, my lord. We've just had a neighbor sort of so-called cardinal declare Martin Luther a genius. Oh yes, yes, that's right. That was Dolan, right, Cardinal Dolan? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he would not know what a genius is. I, I think. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's well, let's leave it at that. <laughs> So, <laughs> no, we're going to see all sorts of of incensing of Luther in the next twelve months uh, or more. the The big day is mm-hmm. October thirty fourth, thirty first, fifteen twenty seventeen, which is five hundred years since the posting of the ninety five theses in, in uh, Wittenberg. And uh, but you're going to see all of this praise of Luther. And we're going to see a, uh, a, a warming up again or a heating up again of that horrid document that came out in the 1990s. I think it was 1999, the uh, joint declaration uh, concerning justification with the Lutherans, which was the work of Ratzinger. Uh, that's loaded with heresy, just loaded. I was reading it over today, loaded. Practically every statement is heretical. And we're going to see that as some sort of basis of union between Lutherans and, uh, and, and so-called Catholics. So, uh, but um, getting back to the original point, the, the, the Rath is the, the, that modernist idea that doctrine doesn't matter and that we all have our own relationship with God. That's the basis of all ecumenism. And that, that is what has destroyed Catholicism in all of our institutions. Well, we've had some excellent uh, quotations in the in the part of this document that we've reviewed today. Uh, De Groot, Mazzella, Patrizzi, uh, particularly Cardinal Patrizzi. I had the image in my mind of a man 
getting in a steamroller and just grinding all of the uh, Anglicans to dust. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a glorious thing to a glorious thing to behold in my mind's eye. Um, <laughs> uh, ironically, we have a seminarian named Patrizzi here, so. <laughs> And he has sort of the same personality, I would say. <laughs> I could see him saying the very same things to a bunch of Anglicans. Yeah, I can too. <laughs> Good for him. Okay, well, once again, my lord, thank you for your time. And we will look forward to talking to you again in the next episode of this series. Thank you again, and may God bless you. Thank you. If you have any questions for Bishop Sanborn or feedback on this episode, please contact us at antimodernist at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments to his lordship. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful or beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary or even simply an ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.